0: Our reading this morning are parts from Luke chapter one. In the days of Herod, the, Herod king of Judea, there was a priest named Zachariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice in his birth to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news and behold, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and for five months she kept herself hidden saying, thus the Lord has done to me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he answered for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered and immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbours and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard him laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that that we should be saved from our sins and from the hand of all those who hate us to show us the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to God, to Israel. And God always blesses the reading of his word.
1: Well, welcome, especially if you're with us today as our guest and uh, don't worship here normally, uh, a special welcome. I also want to add my, um, my thanks to Beck Clark and the, the team, the busy team, that enormous amount of work went into that uh, uh, craft Christmas market on Friday. Uh, and I think it was uh, providential that we had that rainstorm, really, which uh, brought us all inside and the atmosphere was uh, uh, close in a positive way. <laughs> And uh, I, I think that was absolutely terrific, a number of conversations and people chatting to each other and uh, it was very uh, well worth doing, I think, and uh, a good way to set the, the theme of Christmas. That's really what I'm doing this morning is I want to look at this uh, passage that we just looked at. Luke chapter 1 is a long chapter. I've left out half of it. Uh, and uh, it's, it's like a plat. It's two stories of two family trees woven together, one is that of Zachariah and, and his family that you've just heard and next week we're looking at the other thread that gets wound together with that which is the story of Mary, both stories of an angelic visitation uh, but also they are both stories that frame the Christmas event and Luke is trying to say to us that uh, we, we can't understand that miracle which we celebrate at Christmas, that virgin birth, without understanding what went before it and he's very much a writer of salvation history, he likes to couch things in a historical time sense, that's a strong thread for Luke and he does that here by looking at this story which he places in the days of King Herod in verse 5 and we read about this priest, Zechariah, Uh, And uh, we read here of this division called Abijah, that is, the priesthood uh, had a big roster with about 24 divisions that went through and the different priestly families would have their time uh, twice a year on that roster. And you're talking of hundreds of people now that are on that roster potentially. And uh, we read also about Zechariah that he he was a priest, which is a, a, a... a position in society that holds a lot of kudos and his wife she could trace her lineage all the way back to Aaron, first priest. So this fellow has uh, theologically a lot of credit points and yet this family bears social stigma because uh, like many great women in the Old Testament uh, his wife Elizabeth is barren, cannot bear children, hasn't borne children now, what was it like to be barren? It wasn't just that, oh, I wish we'd had kids, you know, or maybe we adopt. It's not that sort of situation. To be barren is to have the frown of God upon you. That's how it was interpreted, that, you know, that something happened in this family tree, there's a shadow over it, because God has not blessed. Christians are a little bit like that today too, but the Jews more so, they had a very linear way of looking at life and, and when bad things happened, they'd put it down to the intervention of God. And she was barren, it goes without saying. You know, something is unknown beneath the surface in that family. So they would have gone through life with a shadow over them. And she felt that deeply as we read. Even though she had pedigree when it came to the priesthood, she was under a cloud, and so was he. Well, That's how they thought they'd live out their days. And Verse 8, we read that it was that time when this part of his tribe was on duty, serving as a priest before God and getting the temple ready for all the daily rigmarole that went into sacrifice and the giving of incense and the saying of prayers, the intercession that a priest made on behalf of Israel daily. Uh, He was chosen by Lot. Now that really is is an incredible thing. There are hundreds that could have been chosen, but this man was chosen, and it, it, it's a contradiction to that social stigma. And it would have been a lot of backslapping. Well done, Zachariah. I think he would have had a lovely, warm inner glow as his name was called out or his his marble came out of the drawer. Uh, he wouldn't have believed it. You know, you can only do that once in a lifetime and most people didn't, it was like the AFL, many people go through a whole playing career and never play in a premiership, let alone win one and Zachariah was one of the many, he thought, but this day the providence of God had intervened in his behalf and so God was on his side and he felt pretty good about that and this would confute the naysayers and those who uh, muttered under their breath about what had gone on or where there was smoke and there must have been fire, all that sort of thing would be put aside because he had got a Guernsey on this team to offer incense on behalf of God's nation, in God's holy place, the miraculous uh, the work of intercession would occur through his own mouths and his own hands. And we read that there's a whole multitude of people in, in verse 10... Uh, outside waiting uh, and there's a, these are the devout of Israel, the whole city isn't there but there are people who believed in the sacrificial system and that God and his intervening work was really what made the world go round and so they're waiting and they watch, they never get to see the actual act, it's in a separate place, this is holy stuff, this is a secret business that's put apart from them but they wait to see that the the liturgy is fulfilled well. And this is around evening sacrifice and now robed in the the vestments of the priest, he enters through the stone walls from the outer into the inner circle, into the inner sanctuary. And it would have been a fairly heavy atmosphere, a dank atmosphere. Uh, There's only the smell of candle wax burning he would come into the Holy of Holies and we, we have some pictures of this from if the new, t- new temple. Remember this is the rebuilt temple, the first one was just destroyed and this one is the new improved model. And he enters to the where God is and symbolized by that Ark of the Covenant, which is a symbol of the fact that Israel's destiny was in the hands of the promise and curses of God. And this one enters and he can see the shadows flickering as the candelabra beside the, the, uh, the altar is there. And he gets through the liturgy it seems and he, he says the prayers and he, he sprinkles the incense in the appropriate way. And then uh, someone... <clears throat> <laughs> and there is someone else with him. No one else is meant to be there. I think his heart would have missed a beat right then and he looks up and sees this incredible figure between the altar and the candelabra and it is an angel, not just another person, another being. And That would have been stunning at any time but to see this person when you are in the presence of the Almighty, doing Almighty work would have been an awesome thing. I think the blood rushed from his face because the angel that we read about him is... uh, he was trembling, trembling and the angel says, don't be afraid Zechariah for your prayer has been heard and I think that's the prayer for the redemption of Israel, they would pray that daily. The redemption of Israel prayer has been heard and as a bonus, a little add-on to the bill that's gone before God is the fact that your wife who was barren will bear a child. This is going to be a double whammy miracle and you'll call his name John. And then the angel just, you know, he's full of this news and he just flows and I, I think if, you, if we had it on the screen you could count on something like nine or ten things we're told about this character, John. Uh, he just rattles them off. The angel just rattles off the, these things. He speaks about uh, the miraculous birth, that it would break the normal laws of, of biology. Uh, he was told the name... There are corollaries of this, obviously there's going to be rejoicing, this uh, child will be abstinent, he won't take alcohol because he has a specific task, he's going to be filled with God's Spirit and nothing must intervene with that. And and from the womb he would have this Spirit. This one uh, is, we'll get back to this idea of the Spirit from the womb next week. And his ministry will be to turn Israel back towards God. It'll be like a revival ministry. And uh, he will remove the, the disappointment and I think the phrase there to turn the hearts of the fathers towards the children. I think it's talking about the fact that these Jews believe that the patriarchs, the greats of the past, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all those people were always witnessing Israel and they're disappointed. They look at the parlous state of uh, spiritual life in Israel but, you know, what's going to happen in this revival is going to put a smile on the dial of the patriarchs in heaven who witness Israel. And this is the work of this person. And finally, it'll be a preparation for the Lord, whatever that means. The Lord is involved in this, and this is for something that the Lord is going to be doing. The personal, the, the pastoral issues of this family of Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, wrapped up with the national and God is going to kill these two birds with one stone, stone so to speak. Well, Zechariah hears this, he hears this spray from the angel and uh, and, and the trouble is, he, like uh, Maxwell Smart, uh, is sort of zoned out at point one. And, um, you know, I'm with you up until now, listen here. <laughs> and and he's, uh, he's heard point one and that's where he got stuck. Because he, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, he's saying, but did you say my wife Elizabeth will bear a son? He says, how shall I know this in verse 18? For I'm an old man, my wife is advanced in years. Now let's unpack that this is critical to what happens next. Now it might seem on the surface a reasonable thing to say, it's true. Elizabeth and he are beyond childbearing, she's been wearing mauve caftans for years and this is not, she's not no longer a primary producer um, you know, and so yeah, that's, that's true uh, and he's not embarrassed by that and then but if you unpack that, In this context, where he is just being told by the angel that God is going to do a miracle, when he says, how shall this be, it is an implicit demand for a sign. That is, he is not going to believe it because of who said it or what was said. His is not a faith that depends on the word, it needs a sign. And this angel better come through with it. If you unpack that effectively, it tells us a lot about this guy's theology, about the structure of his faith. Sure, he's a priest. Sure, he's qualified. But is he a man of faith? Firstly, he has an ambivalent sense of salvation history. He just thinks that every day is the same. He doesn't expect God to intervene. This week, he's just lucky. But this priesthood thing in his book is going to be going on and on like this forever. As it was in the past, nothing ever changes and nothing ever will. There are many Christians who have that sort of faith. Belief in the continuity of what has happened. As if that is Lord. He has no sense that history is heading somewhere. No sense... That God's history will come to a culmination point, let alone the fact that that climax point is here today. He doesn't buy that. He's very ambivalent about salvation history. But he's totally agnostic when it comes to the Word of God. He has a totally different sort of religion. His religion is a religion of the plausible. It's what a man, a reasonable, a decent sort of guy, can accept as normal. This is not a man who believes in the Word of God with implicit trust, in the revealed Word. But the worst thing about this sort of theology, this sort of faith, this sort of spirituality, is that this man believes in a way that is an affront to God. His belief is that the creation is sovereign over the Creator. That this Creator is not able to intervene in His own world. That's something that's in the too hard basket. Even God can't do that. It is an implicit reduction of the majesty of God. When we see and unpack this faith we can understand the response of the angel in the next verses. We cannot pass this passage without seeing, in my experience, as someone who has worked in the area of theology and studied for many years under many theologians and many different systems, I cannot but see here a classic picture today of highbrow liberal Protestantism that's exactly how it works, an ambivalent sense of salvation history, totally agnostic towards the Word of God and a small God that does not break into the world. That is the characteristic of mainline theological method that came about in the middle of the 18th century through a man called Schleimacher and it has eroded Christianity in Europe from the inside out, emptied the churches, and gutted the faith of many people. I can count on one hand the number of people who entered theological study with me back in the 80s that still hold to a high view of Christ and a high view of scripture and the finished work of that high Christ. Many have been infected by this sort of thinking that God can't break into his world, that we don't live in an age which is under the word of God, governed by the word of God, determined by the covenant of God. That's the day in which we live, we live in the days and should we be surprised? As Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 5, when he speaks about these last days, people will be haters, etc. They'll have the appearance of godliness, they'll be professional priests, but they'll deny its power. Should we be surprised? Is that just for Paul's day? It's actually the day in which we live. Sorry to be sober around Christmas, but let's talk about reality. That's the nature of this world, world in the theological world. To be an evangelical is to believe against the consensus of mainline theology. It's to believe in the Word of God. It's to believe that God's covenant promises govern history. And it's to believe that a God can step into His world when He likes At his behest and fulfill his purposes. And so you can see that in some sense the angel uh, then responds uh, pretty dramatically. And basically he's saying in verse 19, Do you know who you're speaking to? I am Gabriel, and I'm not just any old angel. And if you know who Gabriel is, you read about him in Daniel chapter 10. He's the one who when Daniel is praying by faith at the time of the evening sacrifice, this one comes to him with the word that God will save Israel and his prayers have been heard. Daniel is a complete opposite to Zechariah. He responds appropriately to that intervention. And it's that same Gabriel that suddenly has appeared and manifested himself with a direct message from God to this man and this guy saying, yeah, 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 give me a sign. And Gabriel says, well, behold, in verse 20, you're going to be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. God has set his time, this is the time and you're going to witness it, I would have wished and God would have wished that you would have been an active player but now you're going to be an extra on the sideline, a bit player because you refuse to believe the word of God. It's No accident as we look around the world, it's hard to believe as you read what's happening across Europe as it disintegrates, as its moral disintegration, as its theological agnosticism reeks in the nose of God, that this was the place of the Reformation only five centuries ago. But that's exactly what happens in history when the church refuses to trust the word of God. It gets put to one side, it becomes a bit player and God moves the station somewhere else, sub-Saharan Africa, to South America, to China as the church rots from the inside out. You read about this and should we be surprised when, in Hebrews 2, 2 and 3, the writer then, having outlined the greatness of Christ, in chapter 1 in chapter 2, he becomes, and he says the conclusion to that, is that if the message that was delivered through angels is unalterable, how shall we escape how shall we, the current church, escape if we refuse so great a salvation as is offered in Christ? If we become Schleimacher's children, if we just believe as much as the average man on the street can tolerate but we go through the motions and we wear the right vestments and we say the prayers but we don't believe the word of God how shall we escape God's hand of judgment is active in the world today and the world of the church shows where it is at work we are not immune just because we're baptists just because we come from a heritage that's been a heritage of the word if it's more important to us as Baptists to get on with our fellows than to believe the Word of God, then how shall we escape if we neglect the greater salvation? we expect the living God will not deal with us? Of course He will. He is living and active and He demands of people that trust that He is the one who calls the shots through history. Victorian Baptists watch this space. What would Gabriel say? What would the Reformers say? You pick three of the great Reformers and set them loose in the average theological college today, I'd love to be a fly on the wall. God is the living God and this angel speaks his word and reveals his judgment and that's the message of Christmas. That God is a reforming God who demands faith, who deserves faith and will judge his people for unfaith. Well, back outside the crowd's waiting and they're waiting and waiting. It's been a while and Zachariah's been inside. Who knows what's going on? Maybe the old guy's had a stroke. (laughs) Maybe God isn't answering the prayers, and they wait, and then he comes staggering forth, ashen, I think. he was not in a healthy state, and he starts gesticulating I'm not exactly sure, but you know maybe it was. Um, what is, I, iron? No, 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 I, I saw, right. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it, who knows, but he, they get the message that somehow or other, he has seen an angel and he's been transformed by that experience. He is absolutely gutted by it. You know, I think that's a, a good message there for us that, there's a tendency amongst the excitable classes in the church these days to play fast and loose with visions and, you know, some people seem to have more than Joan of Arc ever, ever did and, and, you know, I just, I just think that if you actually do run into God, it would be something that would take your breath away, put you in hospital, you wouldn't be able to talk flippantly about it and that's the nature of this man's uh, experience here. Well, he goes out and they get the idea that he's met this angel and he, he would have been able to get the message through to his, his wife and then we read in verse 24 that she does conceive. Remarkably, beyond the by age of childbearing, the creative juices of salvation are at work here. This is where Christmas starts. In this woman's womb, that just like Hannah beforehand in the, 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 the last of the judges she bears Samuel just like Abraham and Sarah his wife bears the child of promise so this one again God is doing that thing again he is basically saying I'm in control of my history this by giving this woman this child he is basically saying why would you ever stop reading my story this is the same story that goes back to Abraham through the judges and now to the pinnacle of the prophets. I'm still doing my stuff. Is that the faith that you have and the sort of God that you have? That the God of scriptures is not a God who's just sort of, we tuck him up on the shelf and he's back from the age of legends and the legendary past. No. This God is the God who is fulfilling his story and is living and active in the world today. And we are part of that. She was part of that. This is the working out of the God who has the meta-narrative to end all stories. And lo and behold, we jump over to those last part of this chapter. In verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son, And just like the angel said, her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his dad, but his mother answered no. And at that point, you know, he he should have been named in the first day, but I think we can understand why he wasn't. Uh, But they, they take him and they do that, that old covenant thing of making this child a son of Israel and he's to be circumcised on the eighth day. And the rabbi is just about to do the job on uh, poor young John and uh, he says, And what's the little fella's name then? And uh, mum says, John. And patronisingly they think, Oh, well, she's... You know, There's no one called John on the family tree. It's probably something she, she read in a book. you know." It's, uh, and so they turn to the dad and say, well, you know, the dementia's probably kicking in here and let's go to the dad. And uh, they said, now, and isn't it fascinating? They turn to the dad and remember, he's dumb, he's not deaf and they go... (laughs) And he's (laughs) going... Did you notice that? What ninnies. (laughs) They're so used to him speaking like that, they think they've got to speak in the same language and then he calls for his, his tablet... Uh, not an apple one, but just a, just a wax one, and a stylus, and he, and he writes in big letters. His, did you notice what he writes? His name is John. He doesn't write, I'd like him to be called John. He already is John because he was named by God. Right then instantaneously this man's lips are freed and his heart is filled and he starts blessing God that the the cloud has been lifted and he is free indeed and it's just like a picture of a conversion he can actually enunciate the word of God and God meets him at that point And he brings back his speech. I remember seeing a little picture of such a thing years ago when I was consulting in a church in Adelaide. Actually, it was north of Adelaide. A troubled church, and they were having a a fight over the renovation of the sanctuary. It was an interesting sanctuary. It had had old spires. It was a church on a highway. You could hardly hear yourself. They had to renovate. The traffic had got so busy, you could hardly hear the sermon going past. The roof was in such bad shape that swallows used to come in and whoosh, whoosh, while you were in the church service. But would they spend a dollar on that roof? Like good Baptists, no way. And they found all those verses like, over my dead body and all that sort of thing, to justify it. And this young pastor called us in to sort of get to the bottom of it and uh, they had a church meeting. And during this church meeting, people were throwing grenades at each other in a lovely Christian sort of way, uh, from one side of the issue to the other. There was a lady in that meeting, an elderly lady, probably in her 90s, that was bought and depended on her daughter who was in her 50s and she brought her to every church meeting. This lady was severely dementia and had not spoken in at least three years, hadn't spoken a word. She just sat there and was cared for and fed and watered and taken home. Until this day when the chairman said, has anyone else got anything to say? And this woman stood and said, I trust our pastors implicitly. I think we should go ahead with this. Sat down. Do you reckon anyone said anything after that? (laughs) It's often the way that when, when God's people run to an impasse, that the Spirit of God will bump them over that lump. Happens in church history numerous times. Should we be surprised if our God is a living God? If He's living and active? If He hasn't dropped the bundle? If He still has His purposes to make a people called after His name who have the whiff of Christ about Him? then we should expect that he will intervene when he has to. And Zechariah does this, he speaks this word, and then it's a lovely picture. He was a priest, but then he, in verse 67, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he becomes a prophet. And God endows him with something he never had, above and beyond what he came with beyond his natural abilities and beyond his role description, he is endowed with the Spirit of God. What a wonderful picture of the generosity of God. Having written on a wax board, he then gives this prophecy, "'Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, "'for he has visited and redeemed his people. "'He's raised up a horn of salvation for us "'in the house of his servant Israel.'" as he spoke by the mouth of his prophets long ago. Now, this is different theology, isn't it? He's had a theological transfusion. I can think of a few theologians who need one. That he, we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. You see, this is a man who now trusts that God's promise governs the outcome for the nation. That this is a people under a paradigm not a people living randomly from year to year going through the motions that was never the plan no matter how theologically or liturgically or aesthetically pleasing that might be God wanted a people who live under the covenant and are aware that their destiny is in the hands of the father God that we delivered out of the hands of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, you'll be called the prophet of the Most High, for you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people, the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. I think those last sentences are amazing. That basically, that's where he was living, in the shadow of death. A man with a dry and distant, but formal faith, has now been liberated to live in the luxurious entree of heaven, the foretaste of the Spirit of God. What an astonishing stage. But isn't that like our God? Our Christmas God is a story of a God who is disappointed in the state of his church, but he's not going to sit and tolerate it. He's going to do something about it. That's the story of Christmas. He is the God of revival, the God of renewal, the God of hope. And he's a God who rushes to meet us more than halfway when the church moves a few degrees in repentance. That's the sort of God we have. And when he moves to meet us, he showers us with blessings that are above and beyond what we deserve or expect. I love being a pastor. I love being a servant of the church because you never know what the living God is about to do. He is living and active with us. And if we take anything into Christmas, it is that. It is that. It is that. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that this God that communicated through the angel is the same God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who communicates to us now through his word. We thank you that not only did you restore this man and recommission him, but you made him into an active speaking player in your grand narrative. And here we have his words, which are your words. Thank you, Lord God, that you've called us not to a religion of ritual, but to a religion of faith and trust in a God who speaks. We would ask one thing this Christmas, that like this man you'd loosen our tongues to tell this world, to tell our neighbourhoods about the living God who is active whether they believe him or not. May we do that small move for we look forward to how you will bless us in that.